Well, it's great to be with you today. And uh, I remember Nellie when she was young. That's right. Yeah, uh, it, it, well, maybe younger, right? Younger. Uh, we were at Lake James Camp together many years ago when I was the minister of Coburn Corners Church of Christ just up the road and over a little bit. It had a lot of good memories back then, didn't we, Nellie? It sure did. And also, it is really good to be here. And I, I'm really glad to be sane after having Regan for nine hours of class. And uh, can you imagine him as a college student? And uh, Regan always had the ability to think a little outside the box. And so in class, uh, not that he would challenge what we teach and say. Uh, yeah, I guess he would challenge what we teach and say. <laughs> But it was always a really great experience. I, Regan has been and is one of my favorite students that I had. I just, I love to engage. Here, here's Regan. Regan was always listening. And yes, he'd poke holes, but I'd rather have a student who is really engaged than a student who just doesn't even listen, right? And Regan was always very attentive as a student. I've always appreciated him very much. Of course, it's great to be with Brian and Betsy and the grandkids and be able to share with you today. I have some great memories about growing up in the uh, Carter clan. I come from a big family that when they get together, they know how to have a good time. And one of those times is maybe as your experience as well is Thanksgiving time. Every November, the extended Carter family when I was growing up would uh, gather together in Springfield, Illinois for a reunion and our group was so big that we had to rent the facilities of two church camps to fill, it, fill us all and make room for us all. So a lot of other Carters. We had a great time together. Maybe you do as well. Eating, playing touch football, eating, watching NFL football, eating, playing board games, eating. And it was a blast being with all my cousins and eating yourself silly. The only negative thing was that sometime during the day, my dad's eight brothers and sisters would usually drift in their conversations toward matters regarding faith. Now, that shouldn't have been a bad thing. But the problem was that half of the Carter family were Baptists and the other half were from the Christian church. And rather than talk about the things they had in common, which were of a multitude of things, they seemed to focus only on those things that made them different. Tempers would flare, voices would rise, feelings would be hurt. And this Christian family finally had to agree, this is an amazing thing, this Christian family had to agree to leave faith out of any future discussion. How sad. Here was a family where everyone I knew of had already given their lives to Jesus Christ. They all loved the Lord, but somehow they couldn't look past their perceived differences to see the oneness, the unity they had in him. As a kid, how wonderful it would have been to sit and listen to people I loved and respected, all sharing together the blessings of their relationship with God. Instead of hearing about the unity we have in Christ, I heard about the divisions we have in religion. Instead of witnessing the nature of solidarity through the Holy Spirit, I saw the solitary nature of one's individual spirit caught up in pride and exclusivity. Now, I've uh, 
shaky suspicion that this isn't a problem that's unique to the Carter family. I think there are many families that experience the same kind of friction when it comes to talking about the differences we have in the Lord. The problem isn't in the differences, I think. It's in the perspective. Being humans, our being unique, not everyone is going to be at the same place in their spiritual journeys. And I think this is an important thing to understand in our own walk with Jesus. We're not in the same place in our spiritual journeys. We all have to come through Jesus, but how we come to him and where we go after accepting him vary according to the paths he sends us on. So there will always be differences among brothers and sisters, always. But how we view those differences is where the problem rises. Our oneness in Christ is important, not only because of the impact it has on us, but also because of the impact it has on the world. It has an impact on the world because our unity in Christ has the power to draw others to him. Jesus prayed in John 17, 21, that all of them, meaning Christians, all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How important is that? Have you ever gone to Cedar Point, Kings Island, right? If you have, then you've seen a measuring stick next to rides such as, and it shows you how old I am, The Beast or uh, Top Thrill Dragster. I don't know if they still have that or not, but they did when I was there. Next to the stick are, the, are these words, you must be this tall to ride this ride. Well, God has given the world a measuring stick and has allowed the world to use it to judge those who claim to be his disciples. The world has the stick of love and unity and says, Christians, you must be this tall to be believed. So our unity must be a priority if we are to take seriously the common task of winning the world to Jesus. If Christians can't be one in Jesus, if the blood of Christ can't be large enough to include our differences, then the world will not believe. But there's something else as well. We need to be unified as a body of believers because we face a common enemy. Yes, we have a common task, but that task is impacted by the fact that we have a common enemy. The cartoon character Pogo said years ago, we has met the enemy and he is us. Now from his perspective, if you remember that cartoon, he was right. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemies. But for those of us in Christ, it is never right to regard our brother or sister as the enemy. Never. Our enemy is not each other. Our enemy is Satan. Jude, a brother of James and a slave of Jesus Christ. Jude, a Christian who was filled with the Holy Spirit and acquainted with the ways of the world, issued a directive to other Christians some 2,000 years ago. And it's a directive that still carries with it the urgency and power it had when we first received it. Now his words can be found near the end of the New Testament. It's a page before the book of Revelation. And as important as that book is to understanding the second coming of Christ, 
The little book of Jude is important, I believe, for surviving to see that second coming. And I don't think it's a coincidence to find Jude's letter first and then the book of Revelation. It's like the Holy Spirit is telling us that we need to take care of business in the here and now if we're going to be around for the hereafter. So Jude was writing to relatively new Christians fresh out of a perverted Judaism or a pagan worship. And they had received the gospel and were now experiencing a joy that only Jesus can bring to one's life. And guess what? Satan hates that. Not long before, he had these people in his grasp. He was not going to give up easily. Satan's goal is to ruin faith, anybody's faith. Now this surprises some. It surprises those who thought thought that joining the church is like going to a club where you can meet nice people and do some networking. A place where you can talk about morals and good examples like Jesus or Paul. A place of wholesome entertainment and helpful instruction for the whole family. They are surprised to find a battle going on. And that the more they get involved in the church, they find that the distant fire starts to come disturbingly close. It's like someone who thought he was joining the Boy Scouts, but finds himself on the dusty streets of northern Iraq. When we become Christians, we become soldiers in the oldest, biggest, meanest, fiercest battle the world has ever known. It's the battle between good and evil, the battle between God and Satan. When you become a Christian, you become his enemy. Oh, he likes you well enough when you're outside the church and outside the fellowship. And he'll kind of will leave you alone because you will naturally do what he wants you to do. But when you become a Christian and the Holy Spirit comes to reside in your life, you become his avowed enemy. Now, I know that there are those who dismiss the idea of a literal Satan. They scoff at the idea of a being who has horns and a tail and who carries a pitchfork in his hands. And I scoff at that notion too, for he is far more malevolent than that. While we haven't seen him, I know everybody in this room has experienced his presence. I don't think there's anyone here who doesn't have a first-hand experience with him. But experience isn't the final word for me. The Bible is the final word. The Bible presents him as real. And I accept its words as true. And whether we believe in him or not, he's taking dead aim at our faith. And he's taking dead aim at our oneness in Jesus. So Jude sends a letter to those first century believers and us today. We're just looking at the one verse, Jude verse 3. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that God has once for all entrusted to the saints. I want you to contend for the faith that God has once for all entrusted to the saints. He calls you and me to a fight. Now, in my experience, I've been a, a pastor of a church, I've been president of a college. Christians are good at that kind of thing. They're good at fighting. I don't know of a more contentious bunch at times than Christians are. We love a good fight. We fight over the color of carpet in the auditorium. We fight about styles of worship. We fight about what churches call themselves. We fight about everything and anything. For once the Bible calls something, calls us Christians to do something we're good at. 
But before we go off and knock heads with someone, let's make sure we understand what Jude's saying here. He qualifies the statement by saying that we are to contend, New American Standard even says, earnestly for the faith. So I think it would be important to understand what he means by the faith. First, we need to see what faith is not. I want you to hear me out here. Be patient with me. The faith is not the New Testament. The faith is not the Bible. Now before you pull, pull your hair out, I want you to hear me out. The books of the Bible are divinely written and given to us to reveal the faith. These books are the inspired word of God. But these early Christians to whom Jude is writing had the faith even before these books were written. Depending on the date of this letter, it is possible the people to whom Jude is writing were in the faith before they ever saw a book of the New Testament. Now this has important ramifications. Since the faith existed before the New Testament was written, what this means is that many of the things that have divided Christians for years have nothing to do with the faith. What many Christians fight about has nothing to do with the faith, no matter how spiritual they think the issues may be. What Jude is calling the faith involves that which concerns the salvation we all share. It is that which makes the difference between who is saved and lost. It is that, if not, it is that which, if not fought for, can prevent someone from experiencing eternal life. So the faith doesn't include a lot of the things that seem to concern Christians. It doesn't include what some churches have even split over. For example, the faith does not include how you might feel about the position of women in the church, whether you believe in eternal security or not, whether you have elders and deacons or neither, whether you speak in tongues or do backflips back up and down the aisle, whether you believe in celebrating Christmas or Easter, whether you call a preacher, a pastor, a parson, prophet, or pea picker, uh, whether you call the church Christian, Church of Christ, Church of God, or the redeemed, baptized by the Spirit, King James only, fundamental, premillennial, Church of the Living God. Listen, we can fight over such issues all our lives and never once contend for the faith. Or we can contend for the faith all of our lives and never once fight about those things. But you might say, doesn't the Bible speak about all of those issues? Yes, most of those they do. But listen, my faith doesn't hinge on the answers. I can be wrong about every one of these things and still be saved. You can be wrong about all of these things and still be my brother and sister. Now, some of you have been Christians for years and you know all about the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. All right. You know uh, the mess those churches were in. And yet there is never one indication that Paul did not still consider them his brothers and his sisters. And that he still, even with all their problems, he wanted to fellowship with them. The Bible does say that life is sustained by God's word. But my new life in Christ doesn't come from a book no matter how holy it is. It doesn't come through ideas or principles or codes of conduct. Life can only come from a person. 
So I want you to hear me. If my faith were dependent on the Bible, God could simply have sent us a book and saved himself a whole lot of trouble. In fact, he did try that once, didn't he? With the Old Testament. And all they got for that effort was a whole lot of dead people. That's not my opinion. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He called the Old Testament the ministry of condemnation and death. Jesus even said in John 5, you search the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these things that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. John chapter 3 verse 16, you know so well, but God so loved the world he sent his Bible. No. He sent his only begotten son. So faith was not delivered in the form of a book, but in the form of a baby, Jesus Christ. The faith is Jesus Christ. He is the center of it. He is the whole of it. Faith consists of his life and death and burial, resurrection, ascension, and his coming again. And I'm telling you this, my faith rests in him. My faith does not rest in my understanding of the word. My faith rests in him. Without Jesus, nothing else matters. Without Jesus, I am dead. Without him, no matter if God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, I am a lost person. Without him, it doesn't matter if I'm ordained, politically correct, freed up, prayed up, and worshiped like a whirling dervish. I have no hope. Everything I am and ever hope to be is wrapped up in Jesus. Without him, all of the stuff we do as Christians, all of it means nothing. The Bible says that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. In fact, he says, your faith is worthless. I say all that, Christians. Let's be sure when we fight. We fight about something that's important. Something of ultimate importance. You might say, but shouldn't Christians try to live up to the Bible standards? Shouldn't we be concerned about doctrinal purity and doing things according to, Bible's te- to the Bible's teachings? Well, yes, of course. But let's sure that we understand the difference between a skirmish and the real battle. Judah's telling us to focus our most intense energy to contend earnestly, as one version puts it, for the faith, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this is the issue that will make the difference in winning the world to Jesus, which is what we should be about. Amen to that? This is the issue that will determine the eternal destiny of your neighbors, of the people that live in this community. If Christians would just stop fighting each other over non-salvation issues and focus on fighting the real enemy, only heaven knows what we could do to honor God's name. It's told that when the Orthodox Church was having its annual convention in Moscow, Russia in 1917, that they were having a heated discussion over the exact length of what their cowl should be. And the difference between the two groups, which almost led to a split in the Orthodox Church, consisted of about one inch of material. Now, you students of history know what happened in 1917 in Moscow, Russia. You see, while this discussion was going on 
in their religious Christian convention, that same night, just down the street, the Russian Revolution began. C.S. Lewis said that second things, I want you to hear, this is such an important thing. I love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, second things are always corrupted when they're put first. Think about the church. When Christians focus on second things, the world goes to hell. As I've gotten older, I've come to realize that much of what I thought was important in my younger days wasn't as important as I thought it was. How about you? <laughs> Including myself. <laughs> Issues that divided me from others, dances that were taking that excluded, alienated, even offended brothers and sisters, I now realize were merely distractions from the real task of winning the world to Jesus. I was the self-proclaimed defender of what I thought was the faith when I should have been a God-appointed witness of the real faith. A test I give myself these days when I'm tempted to get into a heated discussion with another Christian over some theological point is to have me or imagine me having that argument Say if Regan and I had an issue, had a problem, uh, which I know we could always work out. But say, say that we couldn't work out. I would imagine that Regan and I would go and stand at the foot of the cross. Take myself back to when Jesus was dying there. I imagine going to the foot of the cross with Regan and looking up at the bleeding body of Jesus and see his hands and his side pierced. And then see if I can look at my brother and continue my argument in the same way. Jesus' life and death and resurrection should loom so large in my life that only issues of supreme importance would cause me to judge, a, judge another person or divide me from another person. We have to understand that what draws us together as Christians is not shared interests and not common viewpoints. It's not systematic theology or end times perspective. What draws us together is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is his death and his burial and resurrection. What brings us together is the faith. Paul writes in Ephesians that we have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. So what did it cost Jesus to bring us near him and near to each other? It cost him the bloodshed on Calvary. So we need to contend together for the faith and let nothing distract us from the purpose of lifting up his name in glory and in honor. Do we understand what Satan has been able to do for centuries? For too long, we've allowed Satan's tactics to divide and defeat us preventing us from projecting the love of Christ to the world. We've allowed him to, to diminish our witness by focusing on those things that cause friction and develop factions. And as long as he has us fighting one another, we not only waste precious time, but we nullify in the minds of those who are lost that message of grace, that message of mercy, and especially that message of peace. We are in a fight, Christians. But as the Apostle Paul has said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against all the spiritual forces of evil. So when we fight, we must know who the real enemy is. And we need to know what the real issues are. Now one of the issues that seem to divide Christians is regarding the position of women in the church. 
My father and I used to have some lively discussions on the subject until he experienced an event in the church where he attended in Cincinnati. His preacher was named Tom Mall, and he was a very good teacher and leader, and the church grew to be over 4,000 in attendance during the course of his ministry. Uh, Tom, though, is married to a lady named Kay. I don't know if some of you have experienced or heard Kay Mall speak, but she's an amazing lady, and she was an even better speaker than her husband was. One Sunday, they announced in church that Kay would be bringing the message next week. My dad was not happy. He was an elder in the church, and he didn't agree with letting this happen, but he was outvoted on the board. Now, Dad knew that Kay was a great teacher of the Word and that she was internationally known and respected, but his interpretation of Scripture couldn't allow him to agree to her appearance behind the church's pulpit. He called me the week before she was to speak, and we had a good discussion about what we felt the Bible taught about women's role in the church. He called me, well, I know that you're one of those guys, meaning I was of another camp. Anyway, Sunday came and went, and I didn't hear from him. I thought he'd call me on Monday. So I called him, and I said, hey, Pop, how'd it go? He said, pause, pause. She was fantastic. It was one of the best presentations of the Bible I have heard in a long, long time, but I still don't agree with it. And then I said, Dad, why do you think that God would gift a person like that and then only allow that person to speak to half of the world's population? Does that even make sense? He said, no, but what do you do with 1 Timothy 2.12? And that is the big question. There's only one verse in the entire Bible that disallows a woman from teaching a man. It's this verse, and it goes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man. She must be silent. Now, some Christians see this verse as comprehensively declaring a universal and permanent ban on every woman teaching or holding authority over a man. There's a story about a mom who took her young son to, the gro- to go grocery shopping, and her son kept begging her to allow him to push the cart through the store. When she finally relented, it wasn't long before, guess what, he ran the cart into the back of another woman's legs, apparently hurting her. Well, the mother apologized profusely and then turned to her son and told him to apologize, and he just stood there with mouth closed. He refused to say anything. After apologizing again for her son, she took him aside and asked him, why wouldn't you apologize to that lady? He said, you told me to never talk to strangers. <laughs> Do you understand the point here? Did his mother tell her son to never talk to strangers? Yes. But isn't there always a context to any rule? I think sometimes we use the Bible the same way. We take one verse or one principle and apply it to all other scriptures regardless of the context. So what I'm saying here, context is important. And the context we need to look at is the entire body of scripture. When talking about the woman's role in the church, I think sometimes we can take this one verse which clearly seems to be stating what the Apostle Paul thinks about the issue, but ignore all the 
cultural context of this injunction and all the other scriptures that might address this subject. Now, we don't have time to check out every passage in the Bible. In fact, my wife thought this sermon was going to be way too long. So I, I want to eliminate some things. But we don't have the time to check out every passage in the Bible that talks about women and women in leadership. But I believe there are some that help us put into context God's view of women in the congregation of believers. Judges 4.4 says this. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Notice she was a prophetess, so she proclaimed the words of God, right? So she proclaimed the words of God, but she was also a judge. And both positions were appointed and approved by God. She was also married. Now, if the principle recorded in 1 Timothy is meant to be a universal truth, then it must mean that Deborah's husband, Lapidoth, must have been the real ruler while Deborah was simply a figurehead. But I don't believe that's what Scripture indicates. Read Judges 4. You'll see what I'm saying. The rest of Judges 4 and most of chapter 5 tells us she was clearly large and in charge. No question about it. 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34. In these passages, we hear that during the reign of King Josiah, that there was an attempt to repair the temple in Jerusalem. In the process, and this is a shame on Israel, they found the book of the law buried under some rubble. Oh, look what we found. And it was the law that God had given to Moses. Well, the king commanded the high priest. Now get this, this is the preacher of preachers commanded the high priest Hilkiah to read it to him. And he did. And he was so distraught by what he heard that he tore his robe and he asked Hilkiah, the high priest, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. That, you, know, you think that the high priest would be able to speak about what this book is saying. But the Bible says that Hilkiah and other officials of the king, here's the quote, went to speak to the prophet Huldah, now, in case of, well, that doesn't mean she's, no, the, who was the wife of Shalom, keeper of the wardrobe. And the rest of the chapter in both passages records the words of the woman Huldah and took them as if they came directly from the mouth of God. There is no indication in these passages that what was done was inappropriate or even wrong. In fact, this woman helped to lead a great revival among God's people. Micah 6, 4 says, I brought you up out of Egypt. This is God speaking. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Now, we don't know the specific role that Miriam played in helping to lead the Israelites through the wilderness, but lead she did. God ordained it. Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38 says, There was also a prophetess, Anna the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she came up to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph as she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. It wasn't that she went and spoke to the women's group the next Sunday. She spoke to all about who was coming, Jesus. She was a respected prophetess and had the ear of the people. Acts 18.26 says, When Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, they 
invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Chrysostom, an early church leader that lived in the 300s AD, wrote that, here's what he said, Priscilla was a teacher of teachers and that she was regarded as a leader in the first century church. In his mind, Chrysostom, there was a reason why her name is mentioned before her husband as she was regarded as the more spiritually gifted teacher. Now, this is what Chrysostom wrote in the 300s, 200 years after this happened. Acts 21.9 tells us about Philip's four daughters and describes them this way, quote, he had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Now, how would anyone know they had the gift of prophecy unless they did what? Prophesied. So obviously, if they are receiving a word from the Lord, they wouldn't be told to be silent about it. I think they were encouraged by the church to share what they knew for the edification of everyone. Romans 16.1 says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancria. The Greek word for servant here is the same word that is used in 1 Timothy, the word deacon. So really it says, she's a deacon of the church in Sancria. It's the word diakonos. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors, dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. Now, we're not going to focus this morning on the fact that most Christians ignore the injunction for women to cover their heads in church. <laughs> while insisting on following other words that Paul says in 1 Timothy. Instead, I want us to, know, I want us to notice that it appears that women prophesied in the first century church and that no derogatory and disparaging things were said about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 and 14. Now to each man, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Then he says, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each man just as he determines. Now the NIV uses the term man not in a gender-specific way, but as a universal term to describe all mankind. In fact, the NASV doesn't use the term man at all because that version of the Bible tries to be a literal rendition of the original Greek. The NSV simply says, to each one, not to each man, to each one. And Paul goes on to list all the different gifts God gives to people with no mention that some were meant for men and some were meant for women. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, quote, What shall we say then, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn, everyone a word of instruction, everyone a revelation, everyone a tongue, everyone an interpretation. All these things must be done for the strengthening of the church. Everyone was expected to contribute in order to strengthen the church, not just men. Galatians 3.28 Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate to the church of Galatia that no one had a special status in the eyes of God. The church was having a problem with a group called the Judaizers. And these were people who felt that they were spiritually superior to others, others because of their ties to the laws of God as well as to Jesus. Paul sets them straight. As 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us, God does not see man as, well, does not see as man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, this 
was not a comprehensive list of scriptures that talk about the role of women in the Old or the New Testament. But I think there are enough of, the, of them to, to have us possibly look at Paul's words in 1 Timothy in a different way. Is it possible that Paul was addressing an issue that was specific to the church at Ephesus? That's to whom he was writing. Is it possible that he was sharing his normal practice of not let women, letting women speak before they were taught the deeper things of God? Uh, I think he seems to praise Priscilla and Phoebe for their work in instructing Paulus as well as leading the church at, that met in their home. That being so, it, it wouldn't make sense for him to label all women as unreliable or easily led astray. Is it possible that his further words about Eve being deceived first was an indication concerning certain women, not all women's propensity to be led in a, in a, in a contrary way? I think that's for you to decide. I, I'm not here to say one thing or another, but I think each of us needs to be careful to take all of the scripture into account before we make a decision. We also need to be honest with ourselves to check out our hearts to see if maybe there are other things that work there. Perhaps there are those who don't like a certain church's process in deciding who should be in leadership. Perhaps they feel that they or others have been overlooked. Perhaps they don't like those currently in leadership and see 1 Timothy 2.12 as a way to voice a protest. It could be that it's a matter of pride. It could be that some respected teacher or leader in the past felt a certain way about this issue and you feel that you'd be disloyal to that person because you might come to disagree or look at it in a different way. If any of those reasons are present, we need to be honest with ourselves and, and others in communicating where the, tr the real trouble lies. The scriptures seem to have a number of passage, I believe, that seem to contradict itself. Take the issue of predestination and free will. I tell our students when we have the discussion, we have people argue one way or another. I says, does the Bible teach predestination? Yes, it does. Does the Bible teach free will? Yes, it does. That's frustrating, all right? That's frustrating. What we need to do is to understand that Christians will never come to an agreement on certain interpretations of Scripture. The issue of women's role in the church, I think, is one of those issues. It's been around a long time. Been around since the time of Chrysostom. The important thing is to understand, and this is the important part here, that there's bigger issues at work than my feelings or opinion about something like this. Taking precedence over the women's role in the church is the unity of believers. It was our Lord's prayer that we be one like he and the Father are one. Paul says in Philippians 2.2, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. But I'll even say this, even if we can't be of the same mind, perhaps we can still maintain the same love. Perhaps we can still be united in purpose. I mean, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. And here's the purpose. The purpose is to bring honor to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the best way to do that is to so live and to so love that all those who see us as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ will say, wow, look at how those people love one another. When the world sees that their eyes will be open, will sees that, their eyes will be open to the truth. They will be able to see the difference that Jesus makes in people's lives. My prayer for the church 
is that we can agree to disagree about lesser things because there's so much at stake to do otherwise. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's my prayer for this church. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your truth, your word, the whole of it, from Old Testament to New Testament, from the table of context to maps. I thank you for all that's included in there that helps to teach us and open our mind to the truth. And my prayer through your Holy Spirit is that the unity of this church might, pre, might be preeminent, that our desire is to so elevate who you are, Father, that the differences we might share seem so unimportant compared to that. Lord, I, I pray for peace. I pray for unity. I pray for love. And Lord, I pray a blessing upon this church that as it continues to grow, that it has an incredible impact upon the life of so many people in this area. Lord, I thank you for Regan. I thank you for his leadership in this church. I thank you for his heart. Lord, I know he loves you and is serving you to the best of his ability. Father, I just pray a blessing upon him as he seeks to be faithful to you in the ministry to this church. As I pray this in Jesus' name.